Thank you so much. It's just so heartwarming to see so many friends here in the audience today to support the birth of my book baby. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a common author analogy and it, you know, uh, apologies to all women in the audience because I know it's nothing <laughs> like birthing an actual baby, but, but it's been five years in the making. So uh, thank you for uh, supporting this launch. And um, uh, this is my, uh, my friend uh, and colleague, uh, Rick Steele and he will be discussing with me, but I'll go ahead and do a little introduction first. Uh, first of all, uh, this is, uh, uh, I just want to give thanks to the space, Manila Town Heritage Foundation, uh, which runs this space, and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, as you, m many of you know, the I-Hotel is right next door, and, and this is a rather historic location, so to get our sense of place in San Francisco, uh, we can certainly uh, look to the history of this institution uh, and the I-Hotel, uh, which about 40 years ago was really birthed the tenants' rights movements. Uh, so, so this is a, a great uh, uh, thanks that they can um, support, uh, uh, that we can support them as well by our presence. Um, so as I said, this book has been five years in the writing, um, but the, the incident which led eventually to the writing of this book happened during a five-month trip through Asia, which many of you know I took in 2007, uh, traveling from India to Japan, uh, tracing the route of Buddhism, war, and peace uh, throughout uh, Asia, and, uh, uh, and really trying to, uh, come, to uh, come to grips with all of that history, but also uh, 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 really travel to transcendence, I think, was, was kind of my, my, uh, my, what happened through this trip, uh, kind of uh, trying to uh, uh, gather uh, uh, or kind of merge my soul, I guess, with the uh, cultures of the world, and, and uh, it was just a really an extraordinary trip. In the middle of that trip, um, something happened, which I'll read to you at the beginning of the book, uh, which eventually led to the instigation of writing this book. Uh, I was in the process of writing a travel memoir about that book called Going to Peace, and hopefully that will eventually happen, uh, but, uh, but uh, uh, as I was writing that, I was about 120,000 words into that, and uh, then I got involved with this thing called Facebook. And it kind of uh, threw me for a loop, and I, I decided I really had to see what was going on, what was happening to me uh, on this medium, what was happening to our community and our relationships. Uh, because as you'll discover when you read the book, uh, Facebook was such a prominent presence, especially around 2012. And it's still, you know, with 1.8 billion users, it's still a, a dynamic and large presence for good and bad. Not good or bad, but good and bad. So, so I wanted to explore all of that. Uh, but this book is also an introduction to Buddhism, and it's an exploration of psychological research about social media, and it's also primarily a memoir. So um, the, one of the early chapters, which I'll read, is called Hanoi Rooftop, about the, um, about the moment which uh, really uh, uh, started the process of writing this book. Hanoi Rooftop. Hanoi, a hot summer night, June 2007. I'm almost at the exact halfway point of my five-month pilgrimage across Asia tracing the paths of Buddhism, war, and peace from India to Japan. I celebrated Buddha's enlightenment in Bodh Gaya, learned about civil wars in Nepal and Sri Lanka, said prayers for peace and democracy in Burma, 
marked my 40th birthday at a monastery in Thailand, bore witness to the dead in Cambodia, and am now visiting my friend, the Vietnamese-American writer and journalist Nguyen Quy Duc in Hanoi, nearly 40 years after the middle of the war, which forced his family to leave Vietnam and take refuge in the United States. He recently returned here with his mother in hopes of providing better care for her as she ages with Alzheimer's disease. Moving here was an act of extraordinary filial piety. He left home, work, and friends in San Francisco to do this. I admire his devotion to his mother, his embodiment of Confucian virtue. It seems like self-denial, but he might say it is fulfillment. His family has been uprooted by wars and migrations. He has what my friend, poet Bao Fi, calls a refugeeography. This return to Vietnam is an exercise in completing, or at least continuing, the circle of relationships to mother, birth country, and perhaps, in time, to his own heart, which bears both loss and hope. Perhaps it is a move towards redemption, renewal, and wholeness, not just for himself, but for all the people he represents and to whom he is connected. I'm at the middle of my own journeys across Asia and in life. The movement of the heart, transcending nations and boundaries, appeals to me. I savor this time with him, a dear friend in an unfamiliar land, which he makes familiar to me. Duke seems to live at the fulcrum of expatriate and artist communities in Hanoi. Tonight, we are going to an expat friend's birthday party. Her apartment is on the top floor and opens onto a rooftop where we sit and mingle with expats from around the world, all of them looking for opportunity, adventure, or a kind of asylum in Vietnam far from their native homes. Wine flows and conversations and laughter echo into a warm, dark night under the stars. A beautiful young woman, Yasue, introduces herself as she sits down next to me. Soon, we're immersed in each other's stories. She's Japanese, but grew up in England, and could easily be a Japanese Kate Middleton, complete with British accent. Now she calls Vietnam her home for now. Yasue tells me of family and relationships, past and present. They've been a challenge, to say the least, especially a boyfriend or two. Her loves have been passionate, intense, and even dangerous, taking her to extraordinary vulnerability, where she'd shown her strength, faced down the threat of violence, and transformed the ones who threatened her. The coin of this queen's realm was coolness under fire. Keep calm and relate on. Relationships were messy, but they could be revolutionary. As she discloses difficulties and traumas, my heart opens for her. It seems to be just the two of us here, our friends forgotten in a moonlight spell. It doesn't seem that we've met for the first time, but that we're reunited after lifetimes apart. But even if we didn't know each other before from some enchanted past life, we're new best friends now on this Hanoi rooftop with the stars aligned above us. After a few hours of listening and sharing, I have to leave. Duke gathers me, shooting me a look of bewilderment and perhaps a twinge of jealousy as he mentally compares our evenings. He seems to think I got a bigger slice of the pie tonight. But he has many Hanoi rooftops ahead of him. This is my first and possibly last. Yasue calls out to me as I leave. Are you on Facebook? 
she asks. What's that? I ask in return. She says she'll send me an invitation for this Facebook thing, whatever it is. Yay. And there it begins. All right, so, um, so now I'd like to open it up uh, to a conversation with Rick Steele, who is uh, a psychiatrist and teacher and, uh, and also a... Uh, uh, before a loudmouth <laughs> and the former director, he doesn't want me to say this, but the former director of the C.G. Jung Institute in San Francisco. So, we all make some mistakes. <laughs> first off, this, this mic is not working, but first off, I would like to recognize the five years of work, blood, sweat, tears, creativity, and love that have gone into this. Rob, congratulations. You don't, get, you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that when you're your own MC. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. The moment you just read us, um, this, uh, spoiler alert, has an echo later in the book. Uh, and it, for me, made a kind of archway of, of relatedness through the whole thing. But you say yourself in the introduction that the book is a bricolage. Um, and to me that means an assembly of diverse things that somehow makes a creative whole. Could you comment on that part of Facebook? Sure. Um, well, I think uh, a bricolage is probably the, the, the generous way of putting it. Uh, 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 because, uh, well, bricolage is a term used in art, which is basically creating something out of whatever's available, what's at hand. And um, I think as I put it in the introduction, um, this, uh, this collection of stories and explorations is a, uh, a bricolage, a collection of different aspects of myself and my journey. Um, and uh, 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 I, think, I think ourselves are a bricolage, particularly the immigrant experience. Uh, uh, you know, I think I, as I've uh, 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 talked about it with uh, many some, some folks here, uh, our, our experience as immigrants is largely bricolage. We make do the best we can with whatever's available. And so that's kind of the spirit uh, uh, that I, I intend that word. Um, but also, I think uh, some, maybe some people might find the book somewhat episodic and uh, 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 moving from one aspect uh, to another. Uh, of what I'm exploring, and so, so that you know, so uh, I guess to be patient with that, and it, the the introduction kind of explains that. But yeah, that's what. Did you have an overarching feeling as you went through this? Did they assemble themselves in some order, or? I think so, especially after I'm rereading it and rereading it, and and I think uh, uh, you know, uh, it's beginning to grow on me. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. I think, I think the overall spirit is about transcendence, and, and that's the theme that kind of pulls everything together, for me anyway. So we'll see what my readers have to say. But. Well, I have an advantage over almost everybody in the room because I've read the book. Uh, I don't remember if it was E.B. White or E.M. Forster uh, writing about writing, said, remember the reader. Do you have any advice for the reader? Of Facebook, <laughs> it's a big book. Yeah, I think uh, just you know take it at your own pace. And I say in the introduction there are a couple of chapters which might be a bit challenging if you're not interested in Asian American film. 
and don't don't uh, don't tell me who you are because you probably won't be in this room. But uh, if you if you don't if you're not interested in Asian American film or if the doctor patient relationship is not your uh, 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 interest, then there are a couple of chapters which I say in the introduction you could you could kind of pass by. But other than that, it, it, you know, it, I skip from psychological research to uh, Buddhism to memoir, and so. Uh, so you'll find that. Uh, so just remember those three threads, and you'll you'll figure it out. Uh, Elliot said that there are three conditions. Three conditions live in the same ghetto, look alike, yet differ completely: attachment to self and to things and to persons, detachment from self and from things and from persons, and living between them, indifference, which resembles the others as death resembles life. I can only imagine that writing a book of this magnitude was a Buddhist exercise of calisthenics that you've never encountered before. How about the attachment and detachment going through a process like this? Well, I think, um, boy, that's, that's a question. <laughs> I don't want to talk. I want you to talk. <laughs> you want me to scratch my head for a while? Um, so I think, I think you know, the process of writing is, uh, you know, there may be writers in the room, uh, uh, involves uh, really kind of losing yourself in your words and uh, just uh, forgetting about, I mean, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, to study the self is to forget the self. And so I think writing is a process of, uh, of trying to understand the self, but also let go of the self. And so I think you, you know, you'll see that in the book, you know, the, maybe the attachments and, and, the, and, and I kind of make fun of myself for some of my attachments. Uh, uh, and, and then also kind of trying to, as you read in that, uh, that first paragraph, my, my feeling of, of trying to kind of unite with the bigger story of life and, uh, and kind of lose myself in that, so, yeah. And, uh, I was thinking actually of the production of the book oh. itself too. I mean, that is a material process in the world that cannot proceed without significant attachment, correct? Well, yes, but uh, actually, uh, I think it's, it, it's getting better. I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling uh, uh, comfortably but not uh, uh, painfully attached to my book. Uh, I hope many people read it and, and, and it starts conversations, but, you know, uh, you know, you notice, I mean, part of the Buddhist practice is just to notice what comes up as you proceed in life, you know, the, the, the frustrations of marketing or getting the word out or reactivating Facebook and, you know, in order to do that and, and then just, you know, again, finding some things which, which are, are uh, not so uh, easy to do. Um, and so, so I think, I think, I'm, I think, you know, uh, one, of, one uh, 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 kind of summary of Buddhist practice is let go. So, um, so I think that's, uh, that's the process that I'm, I'm trying to do, uh, to be you know, gently attached to my product in the world, but, uh, but also uh, let it have its own life and, and see where it goes. So trying not to get caught up, yeah. You should have something to say on that, huh? <laughs> Your, uh, what you chose to read tonight is a, is a kind of adequate, sort of essentially perfect relatedness. Like it stands as such a good example of what you say throughout the book. I mean, you must use the word relationship uh, 20 dozen times in the book. Um, give this as an ideal. Can you help us see where, where, where relationship really operates in the quotidian world, the less ideal, the less panel rooftop, the sort of day-to-day? -day. Can you comment on that? 
Um, well, I think it's just about uh, caring and, and being kind to people and, and listening. Uh, uh, and I think that's... How do you see it in your day-to-day -day life and how, how might we look for that? Oh, well, uh, um, I, I think probably everyone here in this room has some story about that. Um, but I think it's just being present, really. And that's uh, the two uh, wings of the bird uh, for uh, uh, Buddhism are mindfulness and compassion. So being mindful, being present uh, with whoever you're with, and being compassionate. And I think both of those get a bit frustrated with the online experience, which is the big divide, which I write about in the book. But so um, bringing, bringing mindfulness and compassion, and certainly we both do that uh, in our work, um, and, and every you know, uh, mental health professional you know, here does that as well. So yeah. no, certainly in our work. I'm just thinking when I graze through Starbucks and wink it appropriately at the barista, they smile, they smile. Um, is that relatedness in the way you're talking? It seems so trivial compared to the hand on rooftop. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You, you might have something to say about that, uh, but uh, but I think uh, uh, you know, in, in a in the playful way that we all kind of get along, kind of you know, making eye contact and smiling at people and and uh, uh, just connecting. I think that's kind of the basic rule beyond Buddhism. I mean, isn't that uh, that uh, zest of life and connection kind of the basic ultimate human religion, uh, which predates everything? which is the reason why we're all here, uh, is because we managed to care for each other uh, for 150,000 plus years. And so, so I think, sure, uh, all of that's uh, the zest of uh, life and, and what, we should, what we should enjoy, not to spend our lives behind screens, I think, ultimately. A lot of faces showed up here tonight, didn't <laughs> Absolutely yeah. so, yes. This must be a very good example of what I'm asking about. Um, the online community uh, walks the line of, of community versus individuality kind of delicately, and I, with a lifetime in psychoanalysis, I'm so committed to individuality. I see the pressure in Facebook, well, I use Facebook, forgive me, but in social media to conform. So individuation versus conformity, can you kind of run this down through some of what you've learned about Facebook? Yeah, well, I think uh, some people view Facebook and social media as a way to express their identity and to, uh, to explore themselves by, by posting, for example, uh, selfies in a variety of, of shape and form and, and uh, using it almost as artistic expression, uh, kind of like Cindy Sherman does or, or something like that. So, so I, I guess you know, some people would say it's a curio for the exploration of self. Um, but I think, you know, they're, they're, you know we're, we're all, you know, I think even in real life, uh, we uh, are both expressing individuality and also commonality with others. And, and the extreme of commonality is conformity. Um, and so I think that's, that's something that I, I notice online is that uh, uh, what's kind of most, what propagates most uh, for good and bad uh, are kind of specific interests. Um, specific uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, beacons of identity, whether it's about racism or sexism. Uh, and those are the calling sirens, or the, not the sirens, but the, but the beacons of, uh, of identity. And those tend to organize uh, people and, and uh, uh, propagate very well, and especially anger. Anger is, is very uh, uh, prolific uh, on social media. And 
and so, so the question is, uh, you know, then, you know, kind of how do you relate to that? Can we only kind of gather as a community in anger or what? I mean, so that's just one of the questions that I take up. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think the danger is that we, uh, that, uh, that in a community there becomes some conformity and that any questioning of that, uh, even good-natured questioning, is not really tolerated, is shunned, is not really heard. When we're talking in person, we're always, you know, at our best, I think, trying to listen and hear and validate different points of view. And so we have this bricolage sense of ourselves, which might contain contradictions, uh, which do contain contradictions. You're actually yeah. moving towards my next question, which is to do with the, um, the capacity of social media to either support or undermine true ambivalence. I mean, all narrative consciousness is truly ambivalent from my humble point of view. And uh, it seems to me what you were saying about anger gets at this, that it's much easier to have a two-dimensional world online. I think so. It's, uh, there's a Buddhist saying, the world is divided into those who are right. <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, if we, if we all get... Uh, and this you is mean I'm alone over here? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, this is, this is a reason that I deactivated my Facebook account originally two and a half years ago uh, was because I, I, I felt like I was getting too attached to my opinion about certain things and, uh, and other people were just very attached to their opinions. And then how do you have a conversation? How do you recognize ambivalence, uh, really? And, and uh, rather than just uh, kind of, uh, I mean, I'm sure we've all had uh, discussions with people who uh, are just very black and white in their thinking or, you know, and we can all become that way when we get attached to our opinions, especially online. I bet you've seen some of that in responses to your blogs. Oh, well, sure. I mean, you know, I, I think anytime I write about anything uh, approaching racism uh, or sexism, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I tend to, I mean, there, there are some trolling comments which are very, you know, uh, negative. Uh, so that happens, but not so much to me. I know there are other people who have uh, encountered ridiculous amounts of trouble with that. So, yeah, I mean, you, any, any quick glance at Twitter will show you uh, how uh, some people uh, become very sadistic about their opinions. And yet there's a forum for subtlety and ambivalence as well. Uh, online? Online. Um, I don't know. I haven't found it. Uh, <laughs> uh, subtlety and ambivalence online. Um, the subtlety network. Uh, I, I don't think it gets too many shares. Uh, maybe, you know, uh, yeah. It's very quiet share. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't seen it, but um, if somebody wants to invent that, maybe that could be the next, the next uh, Facebook. <laughs> I've got some Greek in this question. Oh no! Uh, the ancient Greeks had two words for notoriety: "tme" and "kleos." "Tme" refers to the visible signs of <coughs> visible what? Visible signs of success or accomplishment. Like when you think of online profiles, and everybody loves sunsets, hiking, and drives a Subaru. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, kleos. Uh, kleos is what people say about you when you're not present. It seems to me, as a naive person, that the social media lend themselves tremendously to teammate, but kind of leave kleos in the shadow. But I could be misguided. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think you know social media is kind of a display, right? And uh, and, and you know, uh, you know, people 
display whatever they wish, and uh, uh, you know, and, and that's fine. I mean, I, I've seen plenty of examples of character and uh, really heartwarming stories, and uh, and people sharing, you know, tribulations as well. That that can happen online. Um, so I'm not saying that social media is all bad, um, uh, but but I think uh, the worst is uh, what one of my patients called it, success theater. Um, and so people show their highlights, the highlight reel, the, the things which, you know, uh, being on, uh, getting an award, or, I mean, that's all fine, but, you know, uh, showing great pictures of this, themselves on vacation and all this, and that's fine, that's fine to some extent, but, but you know, I always, I always say the juxtaposition is, you're looking at all their great pictures, their highlight reel, their success theater, while you're at home in your pajamas. So you always feel like a loser in comparison. Feeling fat. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I mean, that's the, the yeah, I mean, you know, there's a, on Instagram, there's this trend called the uh, fitspiration images, which is people working out. You know, so uh, uh, you know, I call it fit shaming. So, <laughs> um, so <laughs> you know, if I want to do that, I'll go walk Venice Beach or something. You know? <laughs> you, uh, yeah. shame. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, you, I think you touched on some of the studies, but uh, particularly social ones. But do we have a neurophysiology of compassion? Oh, uh, wow. All right. Well, <laughs> I might turn it over to one of our, our guests. Uh, questions here. Yeah. Uh, I think this is being actively researched right now, but, uh, but there are uh, uh, areas of the brain that are related to mindfulness, the experiential self. Uh, we have mirror neurons, as you well know, uh, uh, and, uh, which, uh, which are uh, literally how our brain kind of echoes uh, what, what we see others experiencing. And so I think that's thought to be the kind of the foundation of compassion. Uh, mm -hmm. but, All right. Yeah. Comments from the floor? Probably. Yeah, anybody? Alan? Uh, uh, do you meditate every day? I do. I do How meditate. long do you meditate? 45 minutes to the morning. Yes, in the morning. With coffee? With coffee. <laughs> <laughs> meditate with your eyes open? Uh, usually open, yes. Yes. And sometimes with a guided, but usually just by myself. Visualization, or you just watch your mind? I just watch my mind mostly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Really, we really only got one more question. Uh, it grows out of an experience I had last week with a colleague who happens to be present. I was going on about tonight's presentation and sort of saying that I was Facebook naive because I didn't have a Facebook page. And what about that? And he said, "Oh, you don't know." And uh, he searched it, and I do have a Facebook page. I never have signed up for Facebook. It has my correct office address from a year and a half ago, uh, but not my current address. I feel deeply ambivalent about this. I need you and the audience to instruct me whether to go forward. I, I'm very obsessive in my defenses, and I want to correct that old address, but I have a feeling it's a slippery slope. Well, first of all, I wonder who created that Facebook profile. Was it a former patient? <laughs> a colleague? Uh, I just was it Facebook it. itself? Uh, I thought Mark Zuckerberg was feeling jealous. Well, there are things called dark profiles, which aren't actually Facebook pages, but uh, they collect information about everybody. And uh, with the goal of eventually getting everybody onto Facebook. So that may be where this sprang from, or they may have pulled some business listing, I suppose. Um, but, uh, 
but these dark profiles uh, are created from your friends' contact lists, and, and they get information about you, and then ask your friends to invite you to join Facebook, and they send you invitations to uh, say, oh, your friends are on Facebook, don't you want to see what so-and-so is up to? So that's what the dark profile is for. I don't know if that's where that came from, but but uh, well, should you join line. Facebook? Well, you, you can write you can write uh, your book after you have a have a year long experience uh, with it. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I can take that on. I was just looking for guidance from the audience. I'm 74. I don't have any grandchildren. I have a dog. Um, I have any number of friends and former students. Did I have a Facebook profile? Should I get on there? No. Whoa! I got one strong. We note. have one now. Anybody else? <laughs> I'm hearing a, a several no's in the audience. Well, we'll speak afterwards or we'll take these questions. I want to be clear about the danger I'm exposing myself to even reading this book. <laughs> Incidentally, the book is very long. 412 pages, 111 notes. <laughs> Read and enjoy. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so um, yeah. you have anything more? Or, yeah, I'm uh, good. Okay, all right. Take questions from the audience? Or? Yeah, sure, we could. We could take some questions. I could also just kind of describe uh, a little bit more about um, maybe the process. Uh, 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 like I said, I've been writing it for about five years, uh, and I described that. Um, I had uh, an agent for this book uh, until, unfortunately, he, his family member had an illness and he had to drop out of the business, um, and I started writing another book, uh, and I uh, thought I would try to sell that first. Um, that didn't work out. So earlier this year, about six, seven months ago, I decided to go ahead and self-publish because I didn't want to wait two years. So that's why I felt like the time is right. And as we're seeing now, there's, uh, I mean, Facebook is always in the news. Uh, and most recently, we've had both the good and hopefully the positive as well. Uh, the positive, the, the spreading of messages, the raising uh, alarms and, and, and solidarity around issues of sexual harassment and abuse. So I think that's, uh, I think overall, a very positive uh, uh, development uh, and potential. But then we also have the possibility that it's uh, negatively influenced many of us, uh, or many people out there in the country uh, uh, with the Russian ad buying scandal and so forth. So, so this is a huge, I mean, Facebook is larger than the Catholic Church. Um, it's the largest, it's larger than any country on earth. So it has, uh, a big influence, and I think you know the medium is the message. So, uh, so this is what we really have to pay attention to. Is you know, as the question that I took up uh, early in the book was, how is this affecting me? How is what's the uh, effect on my relationships and on, on my community? And uh, how can I be more mindful about that? And which, how, do, where do I want to place my feet? Where do I want to place my intentions in the world? And and so that just led to a deepening of experience in the world and also uh, a more reflective experience with my time on Facebook. So I hope people uh, enjoy my exploration. So, but we can turn it over to questions. I see you have a question. Uh, Robbie, first of all, congratulations. Thank you, Bruce. Yeah, so good to see you. I'm delighted. And I would like you to imagine that Mark Zuckerberg is in the audience. Okay. Okay, you see where this is going. Uh -huh. and, uh, uh, and because, you know, in some ways we treat Facebook like this monolith, and I would like to think that, uh, no one, but I would like to think that Zuckerberg is serious about uh, being part 
of a positive force uh, evolving cultural consciousness, he's going to seek out people, you know, sort of like the Dalai Lama bringing neuroscientists to Darwin's law, you know. So Mark Zuckerberg, we're in the audience tonight, what would you tell him, what would you exhort him to do from this perspective? Um, boy, that's a great question. So if Mark Zuckerberg was here, what would I tell him to do? Um, Wow, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I think I, I would uh, uh, you know like to engage with him about uh, about this idea. I mean, he dreamed up this thing, which has become so prevalent when he was a college student. I mean, and what is you know what does a college student know about relationship, know about community, know about the world? I mean, you know, you know, it's just mind-boggling that he created an app that has affected the entire world. So I think I, first of all, would congratulate him with, you know, with his achievement um, and, but, and appreciate that it, it's not an all bad force. Nothing is all good or all bad. So, so I would appreciate him for you know, the positive things that he's done. Um, but also, uh, you know, I, I, and I know, you know Facebook, as I described, has a compassion team. They're trying to make interactions uh, more empathic and, and, and more considered, but the whole goal is that you stay on Facebook longer, you click on ads, and you know, that, that's the, ultimately it's about monetization of relationship. Now maybe you would say that's a cynical view, we're really about connecting people and all of this, but, but you know, this is, he wants to expand the internet uh, throughout the world, uh, uh, but the goal is uh, first to get Facebook on everybody's phone, uh, you know, I, I, and so, so, you know, I, I think I think I have trouble uh, with uh, uh, the idea that Facebook is a purely democratizing force, and I think he has to really. I mean, the first uh, uh, you know thing is already you know the first uh, uh, comment, uh, the first social comment is already being uh, making waves about about how you know social media influences people, and I think that's the message: is that we're really online, we're really uh, we're really geared. Towards uh, gravitating towards those hot places, uh, the places where we get angry, where we're polarized. We're already, we, we came into Facebook already very polarized, um, but it's gotten worse. And uh, trust is at an all-time low in this country. Millennials only trust. Say that uh, only 19% of millennials say that people are generally speaking to be trusted. I mean, this is scary. I mean, from a political and social perspective. This is frightening. So, I mean, can Facebook be used to help people with trust? I mean, it was, uh, as I say in the book, um, uh, this was born, uh, I think, uh, the, the generation that grew up just after 9-11. Uh, so I think uh, both a, a way to try to create trust in community in the, from the uh, kind of a, 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 uh, uh, an expression of the American psyche in that, in that sense to respond to 9-11 but also, uh, you know, control things, you know. And so, so the, the challenge, I think, is how do we create community? How do we create uh, trust? And I don't think this can ultimately be done through the screen. So I would, I, I would, I, would, uh, I, I actually, uh, I, I would, you know, you please read, make up your own minds, but I, I think that the less time we spend on social media and the more time we spend being social, is how our hearts and minds really transcend uh, our, self, our, our own self-centered perspectives and, 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 and really touch 
the broader essence of being human. Well, there goes that position of your being a spiritual advisor, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I'm, what I'm wondering, in fact, is because you made a very important point about the priority being the, mon uh, the monetization, which is in some ways kind of strange, because I don't think if he's worth, I saw some $71 billion, I'm, I'm not sure what more you can not here do with $71 billion than the old paltry $30 billion. So I mean, then, so in some ways, if that, uh, if that is going to be a continued impetus or be continued impetus as it is business, is there at some point a kind of almost an antithetical spirit by virtue of that being a, a priority? So yeah, compassion teams are great so long as they make money, kind of. I mean, that's right. the most simple way to look right. at that. Right. So I'm um, wondering well, that. Sure. I mean, you know, if you yeah. say you're all about creating community, but you really want to keep people on Facebook as long as possible, I think that's that's kind of a contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know maybe Facebook can be a springboard for the real world, and some people do use it that way. So I, I welcome people to you know to find their own adaptation to social media, uh, and that's the key. Is you you know this this is in the world. So what is your adaptation to it? And you have to take that bull by the horns and really come down on and make active decisions about how you use it. Um, so maybe that would be something I would say. And how can you help people make active decisions about how to use social media because as the research shows uh, the more time you spend on social media the more depressed the more anxious the more lonely and the more suicidality there is so I mean you know this is a profoundly uh, you know negative influence or can be and is largely I mean there was recently uh, one of uh, our psych psychologist colleagues wrote the article have smartphones destroyed a generation Gene Twangy who just came out with, with the book iGen and you know there are some positive things that smartphones and social media have done uh, but you know on the whole we have to deal with all, all those negatives and and so if I think as, as, as we learn I think through our work uh, relationships are transformative and if you don't have if you if you titrate your relationships to superficial chatter online, then how does that really affect your personal, human, and spiritual development? Um, so, I mean, I guess I, I would wonder, uh, how does he see this, his goal of uh, connecting us all and... and uh, you have to monetize compassion. <laughs> right, well, yeah. No, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. over the last 30 years having several conversations with people about the environment and saying, well, save the environment when we can make money doing it. And I assume that the solar industry is thriving on that basis today. We're a long way from where we need to be. How could we monetize, I'm not asking you this question, how could we monetize compassion? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, uh, Sell 10,000 copies of Facebook. <laughs> or is it inherently antithetical? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know, I think, I think, you know, we all, you know, we're uh, people in the mental health business, we monetize it in a sense because we get paid for what we do to care for people. I think people working uh, in nonprofits and other, and even business, I think they can find a way of saying we're trying to help people. Um, but, I mean, you know, uh, and, and we're making money from it, sure. But, I mean, you know, I think, you know, I think we all have to engage in a process of self-reflection. What am I, you know, doing? But, uh, uh, and, you know, this is, uh, uh, if you get to the end of my book, I mean, I talk about, 
uh, uh, this, uh, this dichotomy of intentions in the world and how, to, uh, how we uh, uh, get at the heart and how do we cultivate the heart, values of the heart, which I think are so underappreciated and undervalued in our country. It's all about wealth, status, and possessions. I mean, you know, we'll look at what's happening right now. Um, you might comment on your yeah. chapter about the gas line. Yeah, sure. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, so I, I do, uh, not, not to give you a brief shout out to this chapter, I, I call it the great gaslight. Um, so the gaslight is a, is a uh, when a person is manipulated to believe something basically delusional and, uh, and, you know, because the other person is basically altering facts and distorting reality. And so we have a lot of reality distortion fields uh, in the world today. And I think, uh, for me, certainly the, the idea that wealth, status, and possessions are the most important uh, 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 things that we can aspire to is, is a, the great gaslight. Um, and that the values of the heart are, are the true uh, uh, direction uh, we should go in. And, and we, I think we, we devalue the heart in, in, in so many ways, I think you know, the, you know uh, that, that we see it devalued in the culture. It's seen as weak or soft, and and uh, and I think we really have to work at it. It's hard to uh, stay on track and, and to cultivate the heart, but but I think that's the that's the challenge we have, and that's what you know. That's what I hope in my writing in some small way. And certainly, I've been inspired by uh, many of the people I know in this room who do that in their jobs, in their jobs, and in their lives every day. So I don't think it's is not present, but uh, but we just we haven't quite gotten over the finish line yet, so to speak. Uh, so, yeah. any any other questions or comments? Well, the, the great gaslight to me, I'm, if, I think I may have taken the wrong message away, but it, it was like it's hard work to be humble and vulnerable, and um, that should count as work and something in the world. And the gaslight, I think, is the American way of having everything bright and beautiful and happy all the time. And if you come at life complete with ambivalence and complete with vulnerability, some people make you look like a chump. And that's when the heavy lifting of humility takes place. Right, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think uh, uh, you know the value of being vulnerable, I mean, that's 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 not American, right? <laughs> um, you know, it's only recently Brene Brown and, and some other folks talking about vulnerability has kind of made that prominent. Uh, but uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, wealth, status, possessions, they give us this sense of security, uh, which I think it, it uh, there there are a lot of side effects to that because we if we just uh, obviously if we just uh, pushing for those, then we can make other people very insecure in our own monomaniacal drives. Uh, so I think the idea that we're all vulnerable, we all share the same earth, and and uh, you know if we can all just keep that recognition in our minds uh, that we don't, you know, and I think one of the ways that even people who care very deeply uh, devalue the heart is 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 uh, potentially in uh, in. In getting stuck in anger and more, more, more worse than that, hostility, uh, and then, and then, you know, you do devalue the heart, and you, uh, and you become uh, polarized. And so, I think the challenge uh, in this country is how do we create empathy across differing opinions, uh, and uh, how do we uh, 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 try to be vulnerable with each other? As I mean, there have been so many events uh, that just 
in the last two months. I mean, I can't recall a time when, when the world has gone through so much uh, to press us to the point of vulnerability. And you know, maybe, maybe there's this, there's this uh, message that that uh, that we we still you know need to uh, uh, really focus on. Um, but but yeah, this is uh, about how we connect to the heart and connect to the heart of all. Uh, I think I saw a question in the back, Pete. There's actually been some work on this. So what I call this, what we're doing here, uh, and what we do in conversation is embodied presence. Uh, and we get all the, the tone of voice, facial expression, uh, uh, body language, all of that comes through. And you, it, it brings you closer, and the mirror neurons work. And so, so you feel with the other person as well. Um, but online, of course, you lose all those cues. And um, uh, at the extreme, uh, we get what's called <coughs> cyber disinhibition, which is, which is where the trolling and the, uh, they've done studies about the folks who troll, and a significant percentage of them are actually sadistic. And, and so they, they, without the presence of another person, you, people say things that they would never say to another person face to face. Um, so I think this is why, uh, you know, and then once you activate that circuit, that you know, what we could call the, the primitive brain or the amygdala, uh, which is the, the uh, kind of very reactive uh, uh, threat sensing uh, uh, part of our brains. If we keep activating those circuits, we lose the circuits from the higher brain, which are responsible for long-term planning, for compassion, uh, and for regulating uh, those impulses and uh, 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 so forth. And so, so then, then we're stuck in uh, a negative loop. And so, so, so that's why I, I think that we're, we're kind of, uh, uh, you know, I call social media the auxiliary amygdala. You know, it's, it's, it's what we, uh, uh, you know, connects right to the back of our brain. And then we just, you know, get, get all worked up and, and, and sometimes angry and crazy and all of this and, and we sense threat and, and we feel like we have to react. But how do we go from reaction to response and connection? And that's what I, I, I'm looking for. Yeah. Does that answer your question? <laughs> okay. All right, thank you. I see another question. Was it Eileen or no behind? Yes. Um, I'm not sure about your title. Yes. I'm neither a Buddhist nor a psychoanalyst, so could you just first define the transcendence? And I'd like you to really go into detail. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? How does one know if one is transcending? And, and then the other part of the title um, is something that gets in the way of social media. Okay. So, uh, so let's take the whole title first. And uh, so, Face Buddha obviously was a first uh, a pun on Facebook. Face Buddha instead, uh, and transcendence. Well, the way I use it is transcending or rising above the self-centered ego, which which contains hatred, greed, and other self-centered delusions. Um, 
Uh, and uh, so transcending this to uh, a broader communion, I think, with the, the big S self, the larger than the, the individual self. Uh, and so that's the basic idea. Now, Maslow used it. Uh, uh, many of you might be familiar with his, uh, uh, the work that is most popular is the um, uh, self-actualization. So you have the hierarchy of needs, and at the top of the pyramid, there's self-actualization. Well, in his later work, he said, you know, there's actually a level beyond that, which is actually transcending the self entirely. So that's that's what I uh, that's what I refer to. So really, it, but you know, I, I kind of use it in my way as kind of synonymous with enlightenment um, or transcending uh, tra or um, eliminating hatred, greed, and self-centeredness. And I, for me anyway, I feel I can approach that uh, mostly when I'm. Uh, when I'm uh, trying to connect to others, when I'm in relationship to them, I can let myself go and just be part of uh, the all, so to speak. And and you know certainly I, I uh, my the book that I was working on, Going to Peace, the subtitle was uh, going to be Travels to tra Traveling to Transcendence because I also felt like you know I gradually slipped into this uh, kind of uh, uh, be sense of being a human being without an identity as doctor or uh, uh, person who lives in this way. I was just a human being walking the earth with seven billion other human beings, and so was able to trans or to approach some kind of transcendence in this kind of appointmentless time, which happens when you're, on in, when you're traveling, uh, and, and just connecting with whatever comes up. Um, so that's, that's my sense of it. But I'm sure there's there's plenty of uh, discussion on that topic. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, Stephen. No, I don't know. I don't know if there's a question here. I, mean, I must say, so I haven't read the book yet, but I couldn't help but sort of see that in the beginning sections you are uh, reprinting or quoting from uh, memoirs of the superfan. You know, I admired the role that you play in being a. Uh, our super fans, so those of you who don't know, we have an annual film festival, and for what, like 11, 12 years, steadily, yep. you have written at least a dozen blogs, lengthy blogs, reviewing films at the festival. And uh, it occurs to me that what, what I love about them always is that they're so rich in a combination. It's not like someone just saying, these films are great, you should see this one. You find themes that connect them, and there's always these larger themes of community and what a deeper meaning of what it means to come together. And then there's also something very personal in, in your own work, as I've come to understand it over the years. I'm just wondering, maybe you can find something. It, are you placing them in there? What role do, does film and reviewing film and watching a film in a film festival setting, or an Asian American film in particular? You know, it, could you have done this? Do you write also when you go to other film festivals? Or do you approach this notion of identity and community and, and the discovery of what our own cultural connections might be to our, you know, to being Asian American. I'm just wondering what, what part of that plays in the development of the book. Well, CampFest uh, is, has been a, just an extraordinary uh, part of a 
life of the community for, for so many years, and, and it's changed my life. I mean, part of the reason I went into psychiatry was because I realized how powerful stories were, and how you could watch a film and watch somebody transform uh, over the course of 90 minutes. Um, but every year, as you know, I, I, I take off most of the week uh, of Camp Fest and just immerse myself in films and write about them, and I, I'm so grateful to, to Cam for allowing me to do that for, for this time because it, it, that is also a transcendent and spiritual experience as well. Travel, uh, but also writing about film. The, you know, the, you know, the film festival through 100 films takes, takes us around the world. Uh, we really get to uh, lose, forget about our own stories, but really pay attention to the world and take in the world. Uh, in a very deep and profound and, yes, yeah, spiritual way um, uh, that is transcendent. And so, so I think, you know, I think it always, uh, uh, you know, brings up this, uh, this, uh, this quality of uh, who are we together? Who are we in relation to each other? And that always has an impact. Well, who am I? If there's this relation to the world, if all these stories are speaking to us, well, who are we to be now? And so, so I just, I, 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 again, you know, everybody, if you haven't gone to Camp Fest, just please take the week off and, and see, see all these films. And uh, um, I think it's really transformative. And, and so, yeah, so thank you for your work and everybody from Camp who's here for supporting the festival and, and all the work you do year round. So, yeah, thank you. Rob, I wanted to say one thing about transcendence from a psychoanalytic point of view. It's rather less lofty, but I wanted to direct myself to your question. Uh, in the analytic sense, psycho, uh, psychoanalytic sense, transcendence is the process whereby we move from one conscious attitude to another. Sounds simple, I know. But if you stop and consider the organism, the culture, everything <coughs> is always in motion. So a conscious mind is forever in transcendence. That doesn't sound as lofty, but it's just as big a challenge. So we're, we're always uh, kind of evolving a new consciousness which, uh, which supersedes the preceding consciousness. I think this is about taking into account the opposites, transcending the opposites, and, and bringing yourself to a new level of harmony and organization. So hopefully, you know, we're, we're, we can do this in society as well. Uh, I think I saw a hand back there. Oh, Deanne. Yes, hi, thank you. Yes, thank you for coming. My question is about the process of writing. I was curious, what, what was the most challenging parts of writing the book, and how did you overcome those challenges? Wow. Yeah, the most challenging parts. Um, um, well, I think probably the, the hardest parts to, uh, to reckon with were the memoir parts. You know, because I really kind of have to, you know, really turn the spotlight back in and say what's going on, and and you know, um, I had this uh, uh, at times difficult experience in India, uh, which you'll read about. That's the biggest chapter in the book called Origins, Migrations, and Pilgrimages, and um, and so that's you know uh, uh, really contending with the difficult parts of relationship, uh, um, and and uh, so I think. Yeah, trying to uh, trying to understand what was happening. I felt like I felt like I had a, a movie camera going on in my mind as I was traveling through that experience, but also as I was looking back on it. Um, so I think I think that was uh, the memoir 
parts were, were most difficult. Anybody have any? How many people here are on Facebook pretty regularly? <laughs> I see about half of the hands, I think. A third to a half of the hands. Okay. All right. And uh, yeah, so um, uh, would you say you're uh, enthusiastic about Facebook? How many people are enthusiastic about Facebook? Uh, or, all right. yeah. at, least, at least one person is a couple people. A few people are enthusiastic. I've heard one person called. Uh, uh, a social media queen already, so <laughs> so <laughs> uh, maybe I'll ask you uh, about how what that's like to be <laughs> anointed. But uh, uh, but so some people enthusiastic, um, and so and, and are, are other people? Uh, do you find yourself ambivalent about Facebook at times? Do you notice times? Yeah. So so and I think I think that's the probably the most common position people you know, like something about it, they stay involved for something, whether it's the events or catching up with their friends or, uh, you know, friends or family from a distant, distant location. Sure, so those are all positive things. Um, but then there's the ambivalence. And so that's, that's, you know, as we talked about ambivalence, this is what I try to explore and like, you know, try to really work through. Um, uh, uh, if something is, has both good and bad, uh, What's what's my intention with it? So, yeah. So, um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Isabel. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if you told me that, but I heard somebody else found that you know. So you know, somebody wants to write about ambivalence, wants ambivalence about Facebook, but I think in order to be published and publisher, you need to have a thousand Facebook friends in order to even start to have a publisher to, oh, to yes. work with you. Yes. Well, I had one agent tell me, I don't work with authors unless they have 50,000 Twitter followers or more. <laughs> I'm like, you don't have time to write if you've got <laughs> that many Twitter followers. Um, I, mean, I suppose there are some popular writers who accumulate those uh, as well. Um, but, you know, we know that Viet Thanh Nguyen, I'm sure he has more, more than 50,000. But, you know, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, but interestingly, he just, uh, he just uh, took a break from Facebook, I guess, because he said he has to write. <laughs> so you know, so you know, clearly there's uh, there's some things which take precedence <coughs> over uh, over our time on Facebook, which you know can be an hour to two hours a day for some people. Um, and so, yeah, how does how does this displacement? This is we all just we've all got the same time per day. How does this displacement work with the rest of your life? So that can be an ambivalence. Yes, Bruce. Can I get one more question? Sure. Sorry. Please. What is your understanding? I mean, that's, you know, speaking at a clinician and clinician, a kind of interesting correlation about the increase in anxious and depressive symptoms. Uh, you know, it seems almost proportional to time spent on Facebook. What what are the going theories that explain this? I mean, listening to it, I have some in the back of my mind, but I think you could probably give this a lot more thought, and I'd be interested in your thoughts about that correlation. So I think the big uh, uh, problem here is two words, social comparison. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
yeah. it makes us unhappy. Um, and uh, uh, so I think that's the, that's the main uh, cause. And also, you know, we, we get online for two reasons, belonging, two main reasons, belong, a sense of belonging and uh, 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 also self-expression. And so you can do that. But uh, um, there's also curiosity about the medium and so forth. But but you can, you you know, at least for the short term, studies have shown people can feel emotionally close, can feel a sense of belonging, but it tends to fade. And uh, then then the problems with social comparison come up. And, and also, just the fact is, I think we we all when we're craving belonging, you know, we just fall just short of that, I think, with the online experience. I mean, we can get it in little pieces and feel good. Oh, we commented back and forth and we shared this moment. But that sense of real belonging, I think, is, is not present. So I think that erodes us too. Um, so I, I mean, but, but social comparison is really the, uh, the, the, the big danger point. I have a whole chapter about that, so. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I saw another hand back there. Did I? Oh, oh yes, uh, Abigail. I'm a little bit worried um, because the, the benevolence is just isn't something that. Again, I'm being self-centered, so I'm not transcending your. No, no, no. Um, so I don't have that benevolence so much, and in fact, it's been a positive experience mm -hmm. for me as someone who's very introverted and has difficulty right. um, for just. So in success theory, you talked about, it seems to me, for me anyway, and this is going to sound so corny, but it is something that I find energizing and inspiring. You know, when my friends are succeeding, and my achievements are proposing, I feel like, okay, I'm a group that's succeeding too. But I'm just worried, is there something I'm missing um, if I can no, I mean, I think we're, we're talking about a cultural phenomena, so, you know, uh, everybody's going to have their own experience with it, and that's why, I mean, I don't try to make up anybody's mind about Facebook. I just kind of give my experience and talk about the psychological research, which may resonate with you or uh, give you a new way to look at this, but, but I think, you know, ultimately we all, you know, make our own adaptation to it, and, but I think the whole point is bringing mindfulness and compassion to your experience, and, you know, I, I think that that is another way to reframe social comparison is to uh, uh, to admire and to be inspired by, so that can be fine. Um, you know, so so I mean, it, it sounds like you've worked an to an adaptation, which is useful for you. Um, but uh, uh, but you know, uh, I'd be curious to see what you say after you read my book. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, every you know, obviously. 1.2 billion people a day uh, are, are not, you know, uh, not totally unhappy with everything about Facebook. But I think, uh, you know, 70% of the adults and, and teens in the country are on Facebook, and 1.2 billion people around the world uh, log in uh, daily. And so, so, but I think that there, there is, you know, at least a significant percentage of those, I think, if I understand people, if I understand the psycho psychological research that's been done about it, uh, are either ambivalent or they uh, they have periods of frustration or uh, they're just not quite sure. And I think we're all reaching for this sense of connection and belonging. And um, you know, uh, uh, Facebook surfaces and Twitter, and social media surfaces the problem of belonging, but it doesn't solve it. Um, and so, how do we really approach true belonging and true community and you know uh, even the beloved community?
Um, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh says the next Buddha will be the Sangha, the Sangha or community. Uh, and you know, in, in some sense, your Facebook friends are a community. So they can inform and entertain and inspire you. And that's all positive. But what are we really looking for? And, and I think that's a question which we all, you know, at this time in our, the life of our, our, our city and our nation and world that uh, really have to, you know, uh, uh, see what, what can really, how do, we, how do we find belonging for ourselves? How do we create belonging for others? And I think that's, that's the real question for me. Uh, I don't have the answer to that, but, but I think for me, the answer lies in more commitment to the real world. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, yes, by the way, uh, Viet is sitting back there. He designed the cover. So thank you, Viet, for designing the cover. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, probably uh, we get active around things which are threatening to us as individuals, as a community, uh, and, and so forth. So, you know, reactions aren't necessarily bad, um, but they do happen. Um, but, you know, I think ultimately uh, what we're working for, uh, what I would be working for, uh, is a, a, a real community. It's not a sense of overpowering, for me anyway, it's not a sense of one side overpowering another side with anger and with, uh, with, uh, with, with intensity, but rather uh, allowing us all to experience our humanity. And I think that's through the challenge of love, you know? And so, uh, so I think that's, for me, and I, you know, obviously I've been inspired by the same people uh, you could probably name also, uh, uh, in terms of this, this philosophy of love and uh, uh, really, uh, 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 even loving your enemies. I mean, this is, and this is, this is, you know, some, you know, I, I talked about this with some uh, uh, young activists, and they said, uh, "Isn't that asking us to do <coughs> emotional labor?" Uh, and okay, uh, maybe that's one way to look at it. But I feel like all life is emotional labor, and and you know, the question is, you know, uh, how do you relate to the task of being a human being with other human beings? And um, you know, uh, one of uh, my blog posts earlier this year which I wrote and then I read to a group of uh, uh, writers and activists and I, I wanted their feedback because I thought that if I posted this, I would literally get tomatoes thrown at me. I, I just thought that this, this was back in uh, 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 late January, early February. Um, I wrote a blog after many months of meditation uh, and really struggling with uh, the election of uh, Donald Trump uh, called Compassion for Trump. So, I mean, uh, so hopefully nobody's going to throw my book at me right now. But, uh, yeah, I mean, how to have compassion for somebody who's been so damaging and so hurtful. Uh, um, but for me, anyway, it was empowering to connect to a place of understanding of his inner life or what there is of his inner life, uh, uh, perhaps his insecurity or, or so forth uh, that drives him to uh, uh, proclaim his popularity and all, all these things. So really seeing underneath the bluster to the human being underneath, 
was a way of feeling a sense of compassion, and I felt no longer submerged by an oppressive force. Um, although you know we are all still kind of in that state, but uh, but at least uh, psychologically, it was a a, a turning point for me. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think I think compassion uh, and love can be very empowering. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, just to get back to your questions. You know, how, how do you create community and then you don't have an answer for it. I just want to say as a member of the community, I just want to mirror to you that I've seen you for years being so open and so supportive of other organizations, <coughs> other communities, uh, you know, Asian American, I know you've been going to, to, to events, the Vietnamese community, control communities, and you always, yeah, you just very present and you listen and you have can feel, I can feel yeah, this open heart. So I think you double it, and then uh, you're doing it really well because you have a very different you know, reason everybody is here because you do have a very strong presence because of who you are. And uh, so it's, you know, in an iron form when you, you put it into words, but your real being really does what it's searching for. And I just want to mirror that. Oh, thank you so much, Isabella. It's, it's very touching, and it, you know, I feel like an ant crawling behind giants because Isabella has done so much for a community and starting the diasporic, diasporic Vietnamese artists network, and and uh, writing books and being in the community and and just uh, uh, you know using so much time. So let me mirror that back to you. So I mean, I, I feel like I've, I you know maybe I've done a, a little you know a few grains of rice, but uh, but you've cooked. A few pots. So, <laughs> uh, yes, thank you. All right. Um, yes, anyone else? Yes, sure. <laughs> yes, um, so I wonder in the future, are you interested in ca comparing different social media in the world? Like, you know, um, WeChat in China, WhatsApp, you know. I, I, I find, like, uh, I use WeChat a lot because I keep that connection, you know, because my family, mm -hmm. lots of friends are there. I actually do not go to Facebook very often because I only have so much time. Um, but I, I find them different, interestingly different. Yeah, I don't know. Actually, most of the research has been done on Facebook and some on uh, uh, Instagram uh, mm -hmm. and uh, very little on the other social networks. There is one study that was done on Weibo uh, which I quote, uh, and, and that was a study about how anger moves virally uh, through, this, through, through social networks. But that was done on Weibo, and so anger moved more dramatically and, and more quickly than any other emotion. So that's been done, but, but I think you're right. I mean, every you know, social, I mean, there's, there's so many social networks that you know, there's PATH, which is just for less than 50 people. There's COUPLE, just for you and your partner. You know, so there's all these iterations, and I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm sure, like you said, some of them do support in real-world relationships, and and you know, support people who are separated by oceans and mm -hmm. so forth. So uh, you know, not all bad, but I guess um, uh, maybe uh, maybe you could <laughs> tell me uh, uh, after you read my book, you know, how do how the two compare? Yeah, I mean, WeChat actually, I mean, I, I feel. Which has somehow is more calming. I don't know why. Um, also, honestly, lots of um, issues, issues in China or whatever. 
on, I, I haven't read this book, but uh, Zainab Tufekci, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, just wrote a book uh, called Of Twitter and Tear Gas. Um, and so I think her conclusions are, from what I've read, are kind of similar to mine, is that there's a lot of uh, excitement about these uh, 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 social media as a way of uh, uh, advancing social causes, but, uh, but it really ultimately all depends on the relationships. Um, and that, that social media protests can, can be this big flare online, but without the supporting real world relationships, they can not kind of take root. And so that's, that's where I think we, we have to return to the real world. I mean, we talk about the Facebook revolution, for example, and you know, I'm not an expert, but I can, going by people who have lived it or, or who have experienced it, I mean, it really depended on many years of groundwork that were done in organizations uh, that uh, before it took off on Facebook with Wail Gomim and so forth. Um, so, um, so, so it was really not really the Facebook revolution. Facebook and Twitter supplied important supply lines, but, um, but it was really about the relationships of people and to a place, Tahrir Square. So, um, so I think you know, ultimately we still have to say what's the impact on real world relationships and, and so forth. So. Yeah, I, I agree with it. I mean, also there is um, that, you know, group dynamics and the individual relationships um, played out on the, I mean, the WeChat social media too, that, which is very interesting how, how a group will evolve into, you know, a certain type of group. And I, because I'm on different groups and it's very interesting to watch that dynamics. So you sense the, the evolution through what people share, or? Yeah, what people share, and how people react to each other. I'm, I'm sure, I mean, I have to read your book, and... How many people do you communicate with on WeChat? I oh, actually, this is just the, basically the only tool I'm using to connect with my family. But friends. what's a typical, so it's just, like, how many, I mean, Facebook, I think the average is about 400 friends. Um, so what's the comparison for WeChat? Oh, WeChat, I mean, depending on who you are. I, I only connect with, you know, relatively small group of people okay, that I so truly connect to. Yeah, so and that's your adaptation. It's just, yeah, yeah it's, it's mostly purely for that. So, so, so um, yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot uh, for how many people you connect with, but, but I mean, I think there's a, a difference. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, some people have up to 5,000 friends on Facebook, and so that's obviously <coughs> by, ne by necessity a, a fairly superficial uh, interaction uh, with people. Um, uh, uh, I mean, it can be helpful in some ways, but, you know, but, uh, uh, but yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, they're all, that's what I get to. What, how, do, how would mindfulness and compassion help you adapt, uh, find your distance or engagement with the social network? Right. So that's... Also, that I think, what I want to bring up one more thing is this effect of censorship uh -huh. on those two different social media. Because WeChat faced really very <coughs> strict censorship. Right, and, and, that's and the, that, that is a problem, yeah. right? Yeah, it, it is, very clearly in, it is in a China. problem. Right. 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 Yeah, it, it is, and nothing is completely black and white. It is, well, on one hand, it's a huge problem. Uh, on, on the other hand, it alters people's behavior. The more power you give to the medium, the less power you have. Um, so yeah, I think this is a yeah, problem. I, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I agree with that, but I think it's multi-layered change of behavior. But that's a bigger, you know, longer yeah. conversation. Yeah.
Well, I hope this book is a conversation starter for people. I, I certainly don't uh, uh, in any way think that, it, it, it's, uh, that I've said everything that's to be said uh, about social media or about relationship or about transcendence or anything, but, but I hopefully I'll uh, uh, provide a good starting point uh, yeah. to think about these issues. Wonderful starting point. So, yeah, anybody else? Or, oh, yes. Um, yes. Yes. Um, earlier, uh, you mentioned that you meditate uh, 45 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to ask so, how, uh, how does meditation impact you like, in the area of work and relationships? Well, I think it, it helps me deal with uh, 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 life uh, for one. So, I always feel like I'm building. Uh, and cultivating a reservoir of patience and uh, uh, being able to uh, uh, not get tied to a reaction or reactionary uh, 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 engagement with people, but uh, or, or with my own thoughts even, but but have that reservoir of mindfulness to to look at the stories that come up and and just watch them and uh, hopefully be better at uh, diffusing them if they're. You know, if they're not accurate, so so that's that's the main thing. But I'm also cultivating um, you know, loving kindness and compassion as part of my practice as well. So yeah. Thank you. How about you? Do you do you meditate or? Yeah, and well, I just started. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. Have you found some positive effects? Oh yeah, definitely. Great. All right. Yeah. Any other questions or? Well, um, thank you so much. Uh, really, really, uh, uh, it's heartwarming. Uh, it's, it's, it's a bit like, uh, 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 almost like being at your own funeral, I said earlier. <laughs> we had a bit of a wake, and so, so kind of uh, gave me that. But, uh, but hopefully it'll be better than that. There's a lot of rebirth. Uh, um, so, uh, so thank you, and I think there's still plenty of food and drinks, so please uh, mingle and uh, I'll, Talk to you more. All right, thank you so much.